Well, listen, for those of you that are saying, wait, I want to hear Pastor Michael finish on chapter 13. Don't worry, that's going to happen next week. He'll be back into chapter 13, and I'm excited to hear the finish of that as well. But we'd, we'd made a decision a, a couple of three weeks ago that I would teach on this Sunday, and we were deciding what to do, and I said, no, I want you to finish 13, and, and I'll start into chapter 14, and lo and behold, chapter 14 leads us into the last... <clears throat> Passover that Jesus had on Communion Sunday. That is just so much the Lord, isn't it? That's how He operates and how He works. So as we're going to get into chapter 14, and then we'll return to 13 next week. So I want you to open your Bibles to Mark 14. Mark 14. And today is Communion Sunday. And oftentimes we teach a message and then we take a short time in communion. But I want you to understand that today's entire service, we're going to be thinking about the communion that we're going to take uh, this morning. And so as we go into this communion Sunday, I want you to leave your finger in Mark 14. But I want you also to turn over to 1 Corinthians 11, 27. 1 Corinthians 11, 27. Uh, while you're getting there, how many of you guys were able to be here Friday night? Okay, awesome. And, and again, we had a bunch of people here for the outreach. And how many of you are planning on being here tonight? Okay, is Kathy around? We might need more pizza. Okay, that's awesome. Well, for you guys that were here today, we're going to hear some sheep stuff. Yeah. The rest of you have to come tonight if you want to know what that means. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 11 27 through 32, Paul says this, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy, which means irreverent, manner, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28, and here's the key verse, But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, that means died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. At the time that this was written, and in the culture that it was written, remember the, first, the, the Corinthian church was kind of a mess. They were mostly a Greek church, and they had a lot of pagan practices that they brought into the church with them, and Paul had to correct a lot of what they did. And remember, as we will be getting into the last Passover, um, generally the, the communion that they took was at the end of a feast. They sat around and ate together, but what was happening in Corinth was they would have this feast, and a lot of the people there were practicing two sins. Number one, they were getting drunk. And number two, they were practicing gluttony. And they were eating all the food before everybody showed up. So it would be as if we uh, brought these people in here Friday night and some of you came in here and ate all the food up before the people that we invited actually got to eat their food. And they were getting drunk as well. And so Paul wrote to them these instructions that you cannot take communion, the Lord's Supper as we call it, 
in an unworthy or irreverent manner. He was instructing them in that. And he said in verse 28, a man must examine himself. And today, as we study through our text, we're going to be doing that. Now, it's not always easy to examine ourselves. I'm sure you guys know this because we don't always know what's in our hearts. Ever notice that? You try to think about, okay, God, you know, what, what have I done wrong? I'm trying to confess my sin, and we can't even figure it out half the time. Why is that? Well, because we don't know what's in our hearts. But God knows. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says this, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10 is the key. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Now, the text that we're getting into today, it's, it's really so rich that I could easily do five sermons and approach it from a different angle in each one of those sermons. So I promise I'll have you out here by midnight tonight because I'm going to do all five. Okay? But actually today we're going to look at them from a very focused, um, a very focused point of view. In the text today, we're going to see hearts that are laid bare. We're going to look at the hearts of the Pharisees, the hearts of Judas, the hearts of Mary of Bethany, and the hearts of the disciples as we go through this text. And we're going to see what their true relationship with Jesus really was. And as we're doing that, I think we're going to see something about our own hearts. And we're going to have a chance to examine our own hearts before we come to the table of communion this morning. So uh, if you're in the text, Mark 14, verse 1, and let's pray one more time before we get into the text. Heavenly Father, as we look at what you have to show us this morning, I just ask, God, that you would lay our hearts bare. Lord, that we would be able to examine ourselves by what we see in other people and how we can apply that to our own life. And I pray, God, that we would each this morning be examining our own hearts so that we come to you in a worthy manner this morning. And Lord, that we use this opportunity of communion to make changes in our hearts and in our lives. So we just ask you by the power of your spirit to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him, Jesus, by stealth. That's an interesting word, by stealth, and kill him. Verse 2, for they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Now, I want to give you a little background here. The Passover and unleavened bread, if you'll notice here, they're connected together, and it sometimes gets confusing, but this really became all one celebration by the Jewish people, the, the Passover and the, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the first day was the Passover. Uh, generally... Uh, you know, scholars believe that this was celebrated on Nisan 15 through 21, Nisan being April, not the car that I drive, okay? Um, and the whole idea was to commemorate the exodus from Egypt. And I know that you guys know that story, and, and the unleavened bread, you know, has two meanings. One, it has the fact that, that 
they were going to leave in haste, and so they had to eat in a hurry. They didn't have time to leaven their bread, but also to take the leaven out of the bread represented taking the sin out, and, and they cleaned their house out, and the sin was out of the house. So this, this was absolutely huge. I, I think sometimes we don't understand. You know, we have to think of Christmas and Easter and multiply it almost by 10 to the Jewish person. Now, at this time in Jerusalem, there was likely over two and a half million people. How many of you guys have been to Israel? And been to Jerusalem. Anybody in here? I've never been there, but I'm sure that you could tell us how amazing that must be to think of two and a half million people in that, in that space. How do we know that? Well, Josephus records that there was a Roman uh, calculation, uh, um, not necessarily on this particular Passover, but on one in that time period, where they counted over 265,000 lambs that were purchased for sacrifice. And the law said that there had to be one lamb for 10 people. So if you calculate that out, you know, that, that could be 2.65 million people all there at one time. That's important to understand what's going on in this situation here. And the Passover and unleavened bread was so important that every Jewish male, and remember that meant every male over 12 years old, in the Jewish culture, that every single one within 15 miles of Jerusalem must attend. They had to come in to Jerusalem and attend the Passover time. But really, moreover, it, it was a dream for all Jewish males to attend uh, Passover in Jerusalem. And of course, they would bring their family as well. In fact, if they were celebrating it somewhere else, at the end of the feast, they would remark one to another, next year in Jerusalem. Because that was the hope and the goal of their life, to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. It was also a time where there was much anticipation of the coming Messiah. If you've ever been to the Seder feast, you could understand why. You know, they had the table set for Elijah, that place for him, and they knew that Elijah must come before the Messiah. So there was great anticipation during this time. People actually during Passover would be looking for the Messiah. We sometimes forget that during that time. And so there was great anticipation and excitement. And I think you can understand then why on Palm Sunday, which we celebrate all the time, where there were people who actually did believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Now it wasn't looking like what they thought it was going to look like. But there were many who thought that maybe he was this Messiah that they'd been anticipating for all these hundreds and hundreds of the years. But what do we see in the text that we just read? We see the hearts of the Jewish leaders laid bare. If you look back, you see that their only thought at this point in time was how they were going to kill Jesus but how were they going to do it without stirring up the people? And that's why I brought up how many people were there. And remember, many of the common people were following Jesus. And they liked what Jesus had to say. And they saw the difference between Jesus and the religious leaders that were ruling over them. Now this hatred and this plan and plot to kill Jesus had been fomenting for a long period of time. You can turn to these if you want, but you don't have to. You might want to just mark them in your notes. John 5.18 said this, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, according to them, but also was calling God his own Father, 
making himself equal with God. If the JWs came by your house this Saturday, this is one that you might want to take them to, by the way. John 7, 1 and 2. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And then there's Mark 14, 55. Now the chief priests, and we're going to see this later too, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Luke 22, 3 through 6 says, and we'll read this later also in Mark, and Satan entered into Judas and was called Iscariot, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve, and he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And verse 5 says, they were glad and agreed to give him money. So you can see what was in their hearts. They only had one thing in their hearts. And that was, how are we going to put this man to death without having the people riot? You know, it reminded me of, of Herod. If you remember King Herod, he wanted to put John the Baptist to death, but he was afraid of the people. And so he kept bringing you know, John up to talk to him and really kind of to make fun of him. But I think he had some interest as well. But finally, because of what happened with Salome, he finally beheaded John. But he didn't do it for a while because he was afraid of the people because John had many followers. And it's, it's interesting that these Jewish leaders wanted to do the same thing with Jesus. It's also, to me, very ironic that at a time when the Jewish leaders who knew the scriptures. We, we forget that sometimes. These Pharisees knew their scriptures. They knew them well. Why were they not anticipating the Messiah's coming? Why were they not excited that it could be this Passover when the Messiah might actually come? But instead, they had only evil intent in their hearts. And here's another interesting thing. Isn't it interesting that though they were determined to put Jesus to death at a time other than the Passover, that Jesus was put to death on the Passover. Who was in control, them or him? Now, Jesus had already exposed the hearts of these Jewish leaders much earlier. I want you to turn with me here to Matthew 23, and there's quite a few verses here, but we need to read these verses. Because we need to understand the true heart of the Pharisees as the Scripture lays their heart bare before us. Matthew 23, starting in verse 13. This is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, listen to this closely, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Wow. 
Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Verse 18, and whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Verse 20, therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears by both the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, or cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out at a gnat and swallow a camel. 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. Think about that. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? So Jesus lays bare the hearts of the Pharisees. Those leaders were so far from God that the only thing they could think about was how to stay in power. And to do that, they knew that they were going to need to kill this Jesus. And you know, not only did they want to kill Jesus, I don't know if you know this, but in John 12, 10, we're, we're told they wanted to kill Lazarus too. Why? Well, they wanted to get rid of evidence. Here was a man raised from the dead by Jesus. They wanted to get rid of him. Later on, of course, in the book of Acts, we read how they killed Stephen because they looked upon him as a threat of spreading the gospel of Jesus. And I want you to think of this, that the Apostle Paul called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees before he came to Christ. And he was right there when Stephen was murdered, giving approval to it. 
as we look at all that Paul wrote, we have to go back and realize his heart was as hard as all of these other Pharisees that we were just reading about in those scriptures. So the heart of the Pharisees laid bare before us. The only intent of their heart was evil. And yet they were the leaders of the day. Well, we're going to dig more into the text here. And in this next section, we're going to see two more hearts. We're going to see the heart of Judas and the heart of Mary of Bethany. So verse 3 of our text, Mark 14. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and I want to clarify, they probably should have wrote in here, former leper, because Jesus had healed Simon the leper, and they were at his house. They wouldn't have been at his house had he not been healed. They were in the home of Simon the former leper, and reclining at the table... There came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Verse 4, but some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii. And the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard of this, as we read earlier, and promised to give him the money. And he began to seek how to betray him at an opportune time. So I want us to start off looking at the heart of Judas, which once again is laid bare before us. <clears throat> John tells us, that Judas was the one who brings the complaint of wasting money on Jesus. John 12, 4 through 7. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box... He used to pilfer what was put into it. Now, isn't it typical as we, as we look at what took place here, isn't it typical that a person with a completely selfish motive can make their evil intent sound spiritual? Doesn't that happen? And then what happens? Foolishly, the disciples, and foolishly, oftentimes, we will do the same thing. We'll jump right on that bandwagon. Somebody will come up with some legalistic thing and we're just right, oh yeah, they shouldn't be doing that and we're all judgmental and, and we just jump right on there. Or, or how many times when you know, you're talking with another person and a person decides they want to gossip about another person but they make it sound really spiritual. I'm only telling you this because you know, we really need to pray for this person. And then they betray a trust that that person may have had with them. And we jump right on that bandwagon. This is what Judas had. He had an evil intent in his heart. He could care less about 
the poor. He wanted to steal the money. Now, many of the movies that you may have seen um, about Jesus and include Judas Iscariot, oftentimes they kind of portray him as this poor, confused soul. And that really he, he wanted to support Jesus as the Messiah, but you know, he really saw Jesus doing the wrong way. And, and some of them even want to portray that he did a noble thing in betraying him because he thought he was going to put Jesus to the test and he finally would have to, you know, put the, the Pharisees down and take over. That's not true at all. His heart is laid bare before us. Judas was a thief with evil intent. Our, our text told us that he already had in mind to betray Jesus. Now, at what point in time he came to that conclusion, we don't know. But his motives were selfish, and money was his God, not Jesus. Even when he realized that what he had done was wrong, and, and it says there were remorse, it was not repentance, it was just remorse. And he did not turn to Jesus. Instead, he threw the money down and went out and killed himself. There was no repentance there. This is what Jesus said about Judas, in case you think I'm wrong. In John 6, 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, which included Judas Iscariot, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So the heart of Jesus is laid bare, or the heart of Judas is laid bare before us. And I want you to think of one thing, though. In spite of that, and in spite of the fact that Jesus knew this was going to take place, Judas was chosen by Jesus. And he wasn't just chosen so that prophecy would be fulfilled, but he was chosen because Jesus loved Judas. No matter what was in his heart, Jesus loved him and gave him, and I believe gave him, every opportunity to even change his mind. In, in the discussion they had at the Last Supper that you will see, I believe that Jesus was giving him one more opportunity to not do what he was going to do. Next, we want to look at the heart of Mary in this text. What we see here, Mary was the one who brought the alabaster vial of Spike Nard. Now this, this gift that she brought to Jesus was most likely her dowry. And um, Pastor Michael's taught many times on, on the dowry, and, and we know that without that dowry, it was likely that Mary was not going to be able to be married. She was actually giving up that which she needed to complete a marriage contract. That's how valuable this was besides the dollar amount. Scholars agree that the dollar amount here was probably one year's worth of an average person's wage at that time. Think about that. Some of you guys that make, you might make $50,000 a year. That would be, you'd give up a whole year's wages to do this good deed to Jesus. That's an amazing thing. Now the scriptures show us that that Mary had a heart that was fully given over to Jesus. You guys will remember this back in Luke 10, 38 through 40. It says, Now as they were traveling along, he, Jesus, entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister 
called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet. And li listen to what it says here. Not only was she seated at the Lord's feet, and we think of that of worshiping Jesus, but it says, seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. You see, Jesus was teaching at that time, and Mary was listening. We know that Mary had tremendous faith. In John 11, 32 and 33, it says, Therefore, when, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet and saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, a lot of people have criticized Mary and Martha. Martha said the same thing. Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. And, and they've criticized the two women saying, you know, they, that it was a lack of faith on their part. And, and you know, I'm, I'm looking at that going, what? You mean they were supposed to think of the fact that if Jesus came that he was going to resurrect Lazarus from the dead? Of course they wouldn't assume that. Would you assume that? Would you assume that a loved one, Jesus, was going to come and raise him from the dead? Of course not. But look at the statement they made. The statement they made said, Lord, if you would have been here, I have so much faith in you that if you would have been here, I believe you would have done something and you would have prevented my brother's death. That's how much they believed in Jesus and trusted in Jesus. Now, of course, we know that Jesus did raise Lazarus from the dead. And so their faith in him, even though they were sad and didn't know what Jesus would do, he used that as another time of teaching the teaching that he was the resurrection and the life. You know, Mary also paid attention, close attention, I believe, to what Jesus taught. Because she apparently believed him and understood him when he said that he would be put to death. And is it possible that she actually believed that he would be raised on the third day? Which is why she anointed him before his death. You see, it was customary in that time to do that anointing after the death, not before the death. And yet, Jesus said, do not bother her because she is anointing me for my burial. So I think that Mary listened very closely to what Jesus said. Remember, the disciples just never quite got it. They had spent way more time with Jesus than Mary did. And how many times, at least six times, up to this point, he had spoken about his death and resurrection. But they still didn't get it. I believe Mary did. Mary then, in her heart, not only had this heart of faith for Jesus, but she put that faith into action. Jesus said, leave her alone. She is doing a good thing to me. She put it into action. You know, we talked a little while ago about the widow's might. She put everything she had into the offering. This is a similar offering by Mary. The fact that she may even give up her opportunity to be married. She loved the Lord so much. And she brought that, that dowry before him. Another thing that Mary's heart led her to do, I believe, is to evangelize. Why do I say that? Well, in John 11.45... You might write this down for your notes. John eleven forty five, 45, it says this. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he, Jesus, had done, believed in him. So why do I say she was evangelizing? Well, notice that it says here, they came to Mary. The home that she lived in, as we saw back in uh, verse 38, 
in uh, Luke chapter 10, the home belonged to Martha. It says it was her home. Most likely Martha was a, a widowed person and she had the home and, and Lazarus, her brother, and, and Mary either um, you know, came to live with her afterwards or, or sometime in that time because they all lived together in this home. But it was Martha's home. Not Mary's. Mary was probably the younger sister, and yet the text tells us that Jews were coming to Mary. Why would they do that? Either she was just really popular, <laughs> or they knew that this Mary knew something about Jesus, and they wanted to know what it was. And it says that when they came to Mary, and then they saw what Jesus had done, many believed in him. So in either way, many people came to Jesus because of Mary. You see, when you sit at the feet of Jesus like Mary did, and you're there with a heart of worship, and you're there to listen to Him, you will learn of Him. And you will be equipped to share what you learn. I know that we do a lot of programs in teaching us how to share the Lord. But there's no program that will ever make up for you spending time like Mary did with a heart of worship before Jesus and reading his word and listening to him, that's what's going to equip you to share about him. Jesus said this in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. I know that most of you are familiar with this. He said this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Verse 29 is the key. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we spend time with Jesus, it will affect our heart. And we will learn of him. Well, now we're going to move on in the text here in Mark 14, verse 12. And we're going to be looking at the last Passover. And during this time, you're going to see uh, something. Again, I, I picked this area to focus in. There's much more to be taught, but I want us to focus in to look at the heart of the disciples here. So starting in verse 12, it says, On the day, first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. Now that's kind of an interesting story there. Did Jesus arrange this ahead of time or did he just know this was going to happen? I, I don't know that he could have possibly arranged this ahead of time because... Um, some unusual things happened there. First, it was a man carrying a water jar. That didn't usually happen. Normally, the women carried the water jars. So that was unusual in itself. And he told him, okay, find this guy with a water jar and just follow him into this room. And then this is what he needs to tell the owner of the house. It's likely this was a servant of the owner and this is what took place. But either way, that's what happened. Verse 16, the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, and, and I, I have 
news for you. It's kind of a sad thing to say, but Michelangelo did us a real disservice in his painting. Because we see, as oftentimes when we talk about Christmas, so many misconceptions of what took place on Christmas, we see these guys sitting at this wonderful table, right? And, and they're all in this nice order and, and all in these poses. And sorry, that's not what it was like. Generally, back then, the tables that they were used were actually uh, in, a, in a U-shape. I was sharing with my grandkids the other day. We, we went to my grandson's uh, 21st birthday celebration and uh, we went to Shogun. How many of you guys have been there? You know, so they have kind of a similar setup because they have a table that goes this way and this way and that way. And then one group's on that side, right? And one group's on this side. And there's, it's fun, isn't it? It's a great place. But it would be more like that. It would be a U-shaped table. And, and, and these men would not be sitting up. They would be reclining. They would be laying down. If you've been in the Middle East or you've seen any pictures, you see how they eat. That's how these guys were eating. They weren't sitting up nice and straight. Um, they were reclining. They were enjoying this meal together. It was a very important time for them. Well, uh, verse 17, When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining, and at the table and eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Verse 19, They began to be grieved and say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, it's one of the twelve who dips with me in the bowl. Now they were all dipping in the bowl, by the way. It wasn't just one who was doing that. They were all dipping in that same bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now I said earlier, I think Jesus was giving Judas one more chance even to the point where he said it would be better if you weren't ever born. Maybe one more chance to think this through. And of course, according to the sovereign will of God, what happened, happened. So as we look at the disciples here, I think we get a little bit of clue into their heart. You notice here that they were willing and desiring to obey what Jesus said. In fact, they even wanted to be the servant. They said, hey, Jesus... What do you want us to do here for the Last Supper here? Well, they didn't call it the Last Supper, but for the Passover meal. Where should we go? Where should we prepare it for you? See, they had this willingness, and you see that all through the, the New Testament scriptures and the Gospels, that they had a willingness to serve. But, you know, they were often so unsure of themselves. When we look at what they were saying, they weren't even sure. I think, and I appreciate the humility in them, I think they were looking at themselves saying, could it be me? In John 13, 21, the way that it's put is this. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one of them he was speaking. And so I see just a confusion here and maybe even being unsure of themselves. With all the experiences they had gone through and all the times they failed, I can see how they would be that way. It was the pattern of, of the time that they spent with Jesus to be confused and, and unsure, not knowing where they were from one minute to the next. One minute they'd be showing great faith and the next minute they would be in doubt and confusion and and in selfishness. You know, sometimes they were so bold like Peter when he stepped into the water. 
And then in the next minute, he lacked the faith to stay in that water and finish what he had started. Or in another minute, when Peter could be so bold that he whacked off the ear of a guy that wanted to arrest Jesus. That's pretty bold, isn't it? With all those soldiers around. And yet, a few hours later, he would be frightened by a servant girl who was calling him out as one of Jesus' disciples. And I think we can think of James and John, the other uh, disciples that we know quite a bit about. You know, James and John, remember they were up with Jesus during his transfiguration, and yet when they came down, what was the first thing they thought of? They were thinking, okay, maybe this guy really is the Messiah here. We better figure out what position we're going to get. Can I sit on your right hand? Can I sit on your left hand? These men willingly, when you think about it, they willingly left what was probably a pretty successful fishing business and immediately followed Jesus. They had that kind of faith at times. But then they, along with Andrew, another thing that you see is they were questioning Jesus and, and they wanted to know what Jesus knew about the end times. In fact, they were so close to Jesus that along with Peter, they were asked to come and pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane and yet, what did they do? They fell asleep. James and John were bold enough in faith to think, I don't know if you remember this story, it's in Luke 9, 54, but they were so bold that when the Samaritans didn't receive Jesus, they said, you want us to call down fire on them? They had the faith to believe that they could do that, that Jesus would give them the power to do that. And then, of course, in the very next second, they had to be rebuked by Jesus for having the wrong spirit and wanting to destroy men's lives when Jesus said, I come not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And we know that ultimately all the disciples except for John fled during the time of the crucifixion and hid out. So you might look at it and say, well, the disciples, when we look at them, they had a divided heart. You know, as much time as they had spent with Jesus, they really struggled in how to be fully surrendered to him in every circumstance that they faced. They had an undivided heart. So there it is. We look at the Pharisees, we look at Judas, we look at Mary, and we look at the disciples, and we see all of these people's hearts laid out bare before us and I think the question is as we go to take communion this morning is where's your heart and where's my heart and I have to tell you that it, as I've been preparing this message for the last week a little more than that even it's a question that the Lord's been asking me the whole time he's been saying Chris Where's your heart? Are you fully surrendered? Do you have a divided heart at times? By the way, he calls me Chris, not Pastor Chris. Just wanted you to know that. <laughs> you know, I think that we obviously, if we were to look at the story, because we're always asked, well, who do we want to be in the story? Well, of course we want to be Mary. I think we would all say, I want to be fully and completely devoted and have that kind of heart that Mary had, a heart that was so willing to worship, a heart that was so willing to give, 
in such a great way. A heart that was willing to share who Jesus was with those who came to the home. I think we would say that, but I think we have to look at our own heart and say, are our hearts there or are our hearts more like the disciples? Divided oftentimes, desiring to serve, desiring to follow, desiring to sit at Jesus' feet, but not always doing it. And I would say that today as we come into communion, today is a day that you want to have your heart laid bare before the Lord. And, and we want to do just like Paul said. We want to examine ourselves this morning. Now in just a minute here, Mike and Lucy are going to come up and they're going to lead us in a song. And as they do that song, if you feel led to sing, I want you to do that. But I want you to take time to listen as well, and I want you to lay your heart bare before the Lord today, and I want you to examine yourself before we come into this time of communion. You know, um, you can come to God and you can say, God, I need you to show me exactly where my heart is this morning. And you can confess anything you need to confess to the Lord. And when you do, you can experience His forgiveness and His cleansing before you take communion this morning. Now, I don't want to assume that everyone here in this building has actually ever surrendered their heart to Jesus. So I want to speak to you as well this morning. Maybe as you were reading this, maybe you saw a little bit of the Pharisee's heart in yourself. But maybe you saw some of Judas's heart as well. Maybe you've been playing the religious game. Maybe you've been coming to church and, and you act godly and people think you're a Christian and... And yet you know deep in your heart you've never fully surrendered your life and your heart to Jesus. You've never really given it over to him and you're just playing the role. Well, this morning you don't have to do that anymore. This morning as we're singing this song and you can come before the Lord and not only ask forgiveness as, as a Christian might and be cleansed by that, but ask Jesus into your heart for the very first time. And so before we begin the song, I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. And then I want you to pray on your own as the song is being sung. But I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. And if you're that person who has never committed your life to the Lord, I'm just going to ask that this morning you would do that. That this morning you would fully give your life over to the Lord. And that you would just follow me in prayer as I lead that prayer. And today you can have your very first true communion with Jesus. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, first I want to just come before you on behalf of all of us that are believers in you. And Lord, as we listen to the words of this song and as we allow you to speak to us, God, I pray that you would help us to lay our hearts bare before you this morning. And I pray that you will help us to examine ourselves. And Lord, that anything that you show us that we need to be getting rid of in our life that we will and anything that we need to be doing in our life that we aren't, that you would show us that as well. Lord, that you would show us any sin that we need to lay out and confess before you so that we can experience what you told us in 1 John, that you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now, Lord, for those that are here this morning that have never received you, and if this is you this morning and you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I just want you to say these words to him after me. Jesus, I thank you that you came into this world which we are celebrating during this Christmas. But not only that you came into this world, but you lived a sinless life so that you might die for us, that you might take your sin, my sin, 
excuse me, upon you. And Lord, this morning, I want to accept that act of grace that you displayed on the cross. I want to receive you as my Savior. I want to receive you as my Lord. And I want to follow you, Lord, as these people did today in baptism and follow you all the days of my life. Lord, I want you to become the master of my life. I want to live not for myself anymore, but I want to live for you. I thank you, Lord, that you offer this gift of grace, and I receive it now in Jesus' name. Amen.